And it's not as colorful in here now as it uh, as it was before. There's some festive dress going on over there. You guys need to up your game. So, um, so this is the third Sunday in Advent, and historically, uh, traditionally in Western churches, the third Sunday in uh, Advent is uh, called a Latin name. And I'm not going to say it because I'll say it wrong. And there's so many Latin scholars here, but it's spelled G A U D E T E. And it means rejoice, joy. Now, I, you know, I, I took the SATs a long time ago, but you know how you get to the roots of words? Well, G-A-U-D, if you stick a Y on it, sounds a lot like Christmas in Richmond. <laughs> Except our neighborhood is lame and boring, only white lights, you know. Uh, and it used to be when we first moved here 30-something years ago, that was how Richmond distinguished itself, Right. We are quietly gaudy, just white lights, not colorful lights. And you could identify yourself as being from the Northeast if you had colored lights in your house, right? People, people would drive down the street and say, oh, they must be from Jersey or Pennsylvania or New York or something like that, which I'm like, really? That's so sad. Or the redneck part of North Carolina where I'm from. So, um, yeah. So, um, the fact is, this is a day to be particularly characterized by joy. The character, though, and the, the, the traditional text that the church looks at on this third Sunday are texts having to do with John the Baptist, who we know the first words out of his mouth are, you brood of vipers. And so as we look at this today, the thing that we have to uh, unpack is, what is this joy that we're talking about? Is it the joy simply of a baby born? There's some joy there. But the joy that the church recognizes today is this, the joy of sins forgiven. And I would submit to you today that um, if you uh, have a sense uh, where... um, Well, you don't have much joy. Perhaps that has less to do with your circumstance and more to do with your own lack of recognition of your need. So let me read to you uh, from Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. The the text is in the bulletin, and it's also up on uh, the screens behind me. This is God's word, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. John the Baptist said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down And thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, what and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. 
as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news. Good news. Good news to the people. So what are we to make of this? And how are we to uh, think about this? And, you know, as I've, I've said before, one of the things that we tend to do is we tend to sentimentalize Christmas. And the great gift of Advent is there's no room for sentimentality. Jesus Christ came into the world for one purpose, to save sinners. And that's the source of our joy, right? And so as we, as we look at this today and as we unpack this, I, I think that's something that's pretty uh, profound for us because Advent and Christmas are the beginning notes of the symphony of destruction God is bringing to sin. And that's the whole point, right? It's not so much as we tend to say, you know, Jesus came to show us the way or, or anything like that. It, it's what he came to do. From the very uh, uh, beginning of the Bible, there in Genesis 3, to the very end, God has been waging an unremitting conflict to root out the deadliest thing that uh, enemy that stands against us. And he we celebrate in Advent and Christmas the fact that he did that through the dispatching of his own son to live our life, to die our death and to rise again. So if Jesus and Advent. And as we read, as John the Baptist, as John Calvin said, that, that John the Baptist is the one walking in front of Jesus with a lamp, not, not so Jesus can see the way to go, but so that we can see through John to Jesus. If that's the case, then, then if, if, if he is bringing destruction to sin, then he's also bringing destruction to sadness, and if to sadness, then to death. And that's our hope. And that's the source of the church's joy today. Now, to get into this, we need to go back a couple of verses. In Luke chapter 3, 3, we read this. And he, that is John the Baptist, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, real quickly, we need to, to, to kind of uh, rehearse again what that means, right? So uh, last week, we talked about the words that uh, John's dad, Zacharias, said at his uh, circumcision. And this is what he said of him. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Notice that in the words of Zechariah, as he speaks about this little baby, his little baby, that he wrote his name, John, on the tablet, that this little baby, his job is to turn, to turn people. To turn them, to turn them. And really, ultimately, that is what, what, what repentance is. It is a turning away from our self-reliance, turning away from our reliance upon all these other things in our lives that we hope will save us, that we trust will save us, and turning rather ourselves 
to the mercy of God. And so what John's job is to do is to help people to understand, to warn them, to open their eyes to their need so that they'll turn by the power of the spirit. That's exactly what he's his his ministry is. Right. And so it is a pretty profound thing for us to see this. Now, we we we're we've grown uh, kind of uh, mellowed to the fact that this John the Baptist who wore weird clothes and did this kind of thing out in the woods there, out in the wilderness by the Jordan. We don't think much about it, that he was out there preaching like a street preacher uh, and calling on people to be baptized. But what he's doing is actually quite, quite radical. Because what he is saying to people who think they need no repentance because of who they are, because of who their father is, or what their religious practice is, he is telling them, you are a brood of vipers and you need to repent. Now, this would be radical. This would be shocking. No, no, nobody would speak to first century Jewish people in this way. But that's exactly what John is doing. He's call. He calls out their tendency to rely on their genetics. Um, that's why he says to them, you know, you, you don't don't come at me calling yourself um, sons of Abraham. Right. Um. And, and what's more than that, he tells them that to show that they're turned, that they need to go get baptized. Now, we hear that and we don't think very much about that. But baptism, it, it, there's a, we don't have time to get into it this morning, but baptism is not a New Testament thing. It's an Old Testament thing. And there were, there were lots and lots of uh, uh, places in the Old Testament where we see people get baptized. But almost in every case, baptism was predominantly for proselytes to the Jewish religion. It was for outsiders, Gentiles, to mark their entry into being a God-fearing uh, person who wanted to follow uh, the God of the Old Testament, right? So when he says to them, get baptized, what he's saying is, listen, stop relying upon your genetics. You are just like the Gentiles. You need to be changed. You need to turn. You need to understand that you have been relying upon the wrong things and now turn, have your affections, your heart turned towards the God who loves you. Right. And so it's a it's a it's a radical thing and it's insulting in some ways. It's offensive to tell people who need no, no repentance to repent. Right. But he gets even more offensive because he calls them a brood of vipers. Now, why doesn't he call them a, a, a flock of pigs? I mean, what, for Jewish people, you would think that would be an insult, right? Or worse, you know, you're, you're bacon eaters, right? <laughs> you're, you know, you, if you want to get down to some, some uh, you know, insults, why wouldn't he do that? But he, why does he call them a brood of vipers? Because he's reminding them, you think Abraham's your father. I'll tell you who your father is, the main viper. See all the good news? <laughs> right? Now, it's, it's a shocking message, isn't it? Next slide. And he goes on to tell them, to warn them that the axe is laid at the root of the tree and that the one who's coming after him, this Jesus, of whom he is not fit to untie his sandal, uh, is going to winnow 
and burn the chaff that doesn't bear fruit. Now, here's here's the thing. When you uh, I, I grew up in a house where we heated our home by means of wood stoves. And we lived in that house until I went away to college and my parents sold that house and got a better house because the woodcutter was gone. Okay. Now, I, I, so I've cut a lot of wood in my life, right? A lot. A lot with axes, a lot with saws, all that, that kind of stuff. Uh, I started doing this when I was eight. Now, don't give your kids matches at eight, but this, I, I grew up in a, you know, a different century. So, um, so the, so the, so the fact is what, what you do when you cut a tree down is you don't, you don't take an axe to the roots. Do you? No. When you watch those Discovery Channel shows, you know, about the lumberjacks, right? They're not going to the roots. Now, if you cut a tree off and you do a good job and you cut it off, you know, just a little bit above ground level, chances are you come back in six months, there'll be a sprout sticking out of that stuff. There, there's enough life in there. God made it that way that there's enough life in there that something will come out. But if you cut it at the roots, it's dead. It's done. No, no sprouts coming out of that stump. It's done forever. And so this is serious business. This is, this is, this warning that he's giving here and this fact that they're going to burn the, the, the chaff that doesn't bear fruit. This is, this is serious, serious business. And so what John is saying is, listen, wake up. Stop relying on your origin or where you come from or your status or your your profession or whatever you may be relying on and entrust yourself to the mercy of God because it's your only hope. It's a wide hope. It's a strong hope. Uh, it, but it is the only hope. And so we read here so that with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Well, how is this good news? How is it? How is it good news? Well, first of all, it is good news that God can raise up sons of Abraham from stones. Really good news. Because if he can raise up sons of Abraham from stones, he can do it for me. For you. Stony, hard-hearted, cold people. That is great news. And if you love somebody today who has a hard heart, that's the best news you've probably heard all week. Right? But it's also great news to be warned. Right? He tells them that fire is coming and that the axe is laid to the root of the tree. It is great to be warned. Listen, you know, uh, our deacons uh, have been scrapping around here for the last uh, couple of weeks trying to figure out how to make the uh, middle walkway out here safe because it's slick. It was slick last week because it had 25 million inches of snow on it, but, uh, but it's wet and it's slick. So we warn people, and the reason why, and there's, by the way, there are handrails, no one uses them. Anyway, that's just an aside. 
So in an effort to love the congregation, the deacons made the decision today, hey, you know what, we're going to close off this middle walkway so that nobody comes in here and slips and falls. And then so they tie the door up and they put orange cones up. It's a warning. Don't come here. You'll fall. You'll get hurt. That's love. Now, some people stubbornly ignore that and go ahead and do it anyway. You can't sue us if you fall but because uh, we warned you. But the fact is, that's not why we do it. We do it to love people, but to say, hey, this is dangerous. You could get hurt. Don't go here. So when John the Baptist is out there dressed in those clothes, eating that weird food, screaming at people, he is loving them by saying, listen, this is serious business. You're needy. But God in his mercy has more than met your need. Turn towards that, right? So what's fascinating about this, too, is I think John is stunned that people are coming. Because he, he asked this question, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? And, and now you could think of that as a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a question you ask that everybody knows the answer to. But I, I don't think that's what John's doing. I think John is stunned. I think he's like, who warned you? Who told you about this, right? Uh, and it's a pretty, it's a, it's a pretty powerful thing. It's great news to be warned and it's great news to have that warning come from God. I think the people were there. Uh, at the Jordan, not just to see John for the entertainment value, which there certainly was. He's unusual. But I also think they were there because God was drawing them. They had a sense in their hearts that things are not right with me. Listen. Are things right with you? Do you have some guilt? Do you have some sense this morning that, that, that things aren't exactly the way they're supposed to be? God is saying to you, turn, 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 find life. You see, that, that's exactly what he's getting at here when he says this to these people. You know, the, the thing that, that happens to us is we, and I see it, I see it happen to people all the time. I, they, they come to grips with the fact that, you know, I want to change. But first of all, I have to admit to myself and to people around me that I need to change. And if I take the steps, certainly publicly, that demonstrate I need to change, then people are going to know I needed to change and I can't do that. So I'd rather stay the way I am. These people are coming out to hear John the Baptist to see him because God's drawing them. Making, giving them a sense that their lives are not what they should be, but there is hope and there is joy and there is a place where a God will do a work in them to change them forever. Next slide. It's also great news to be set free from the allure of money and power. Did you know that? And that's exactly what he's getting at here in this, in this text, because the crowds asked him, the multitudes, what are we going to do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. You see, when you receive the mercy of God, 
When you acknowledge your need, when you recognize that you are not who you, you, who you want to be, who you know God created you to be, when you, when you come to grips with that, it brings about a change in you. And one of the things that John says, the way you don't do these things to change, you do these things to demonstrate that God has changed you. And, and John is, John could have been a very contemporary preacher, right? Because he knows what motivates people. Money. Greed. Right? So, so we demonstrate a fruit of repentance that I've turned towards God and I have everything I need from Him. Rich in His mercy He is to me, then I can be rich in generosity to others. But we also like to use our power, our leverage to, to manipulate people, to change people, to get people to do what we want, our reputation, our, what, whatever it is that you have to, to leverage somebody else, like a, like a soldier here. He says, you know what? Don't do that. Don't use that. Rather, use what God has given you, the power that He's given you to, to bless and to provide and to care for, right? But he also, we don't have time to get into it, but he also says, it's, I think it's ironic that right after this verse, at the end of the text we read today, we read, but Herod, who took his brother's wife. And this would lead ultimately to John's beheading. You see, John also knows not only does, does money and power allure us and promise us salvation, but the pleasure of sex is such a powerful thing to us that we think our lives can be found in that. But there's something else to note about this, right? So he says that there are crowds there, but in the crowds he calls out tax collectors and soldiers. Why doesn't he say attorneys? <laughs> Why doesn't he say school teachers? Why doesn't he say woodworkers? Why didn't he say farmers, shepherds? Why does he pick these two out? You know why? Because look around the room. Who are the tax collectors and the soldiers amongst us? Now, now the tax collectors, people hated them because they stole from them and they used the authority of Rome to steal from them. They hated soldiers because they were all likely Gentile Roman soldiers and they used their swords to coerce people. They were hated. But they're in the crowd. They're amongst the people who are like, what should we do? We want to repent. How do we demonstrate that we repented? Well, listen, listen. That's a profound thing because this is what, if, if, if we're all needy, then we have something in common with the people we hate. Let me say that again. You have something in common with the people you hate. And don't tell me you don't hate anybody, because I know you do. There's, there, it, I mean, there's too much media for us not to hate somebody, right? Right? All the bad guys. Those people, right? But the fact is what John is doing here is he's saying the most hated and, and the most, uh, uh, despicable among you are just like the rest of you. And that if God can raise up children from Abraham from stones, then he can raise up children of Abraham from tax collectors and soldiers and change them forever. 
So there's there's unity amongst us. And the unity is not just that we're all created in the image of God, but that we're all created in the image of God. And our sin has wrecked that image. And we all have that in common. And we have the only thing, the, the other thing in common, that the only hope for us to be put back together again is the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Right. So you who 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 can you can hate when you have so much in common and we all have so much to repent over? We've got the the worst person, the most despicable person that that we that you look at because of race or gender or uh, politics or uh, whatever other thing you like to judge people over shoes or clothes or haircuts or non haircuts or whatever. The fact of the matter is you have so much in common with them because you're both in danger. And God in his mercy has turned towards you. So what is what is what's the bottom line for us today? Well, the reason why we have joy today is because God has come near to us in mercy in Jesus Christ. And Jesus has suffered the penalty of our sin. And in his mercy and grace, he has overcome sin and death for us. We sang earlier uh, in the worship service, we come as we are. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come as you are. Come as you are. You know, sometimes with Christmas, the way we think of it is we're going to fix everything up to make a place for Jesus in our hearts or in our homes. That's such a dumb thing. Like you could do that. Really? Like you could do that. You can't do that. So stop it. Don't do that anymore. He comes to you, right? And, 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 and as he, as it's, as, as we say here, we, we, we come to him as we are. Praise God. His mercy is wide. Tax collectors, soldiers that, uh, hurt people and stones. Stones. Come as you are. But he doesn't leave you as you are. He changes you. It changes you. And that's great news. Because every person in here who's breathing this morning needs to be changed. And if, if this is disconcerting you today, and you're uncertain about this, ask somebody you love this question. Because you can't answer this question. You can't answer this question for yourself. You're an unreliable witness, so don't do it. How is God changing me? Ask somebody who loves you that question this afternoon. Ask him. Talk about that. What a, what a, what a great exercise you would have. Uh, because, see, here's the thing. The grace of God, we come to it as we are, but we don't go away from it. It changes us. Now, I'm here to tell you today that it changes us in one of two ways. For some people, the grace of God comes to us and it softens us and it makes us look more and more like Jesus. But for some of us, it hardens. I mean, after all, John the Baptist preaching a message of repentance and grace and mercy uh, would die. For this message. Don't let this message of grace harden you.
One of the ways you would know that it is hardening you is if you have been pricked this morning to think, oh, God, change me. Change this. Make me more patient. Make me more hopeful. Make me more gracious. Make me more joyful. Break my addiction. Set me free. But if I admit that I have these things, then people might find out I'm not who they thought I was. Praise God. Praise God. The disciples prepared the Passover, and when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table, and as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Uh, Let's uh, use this prayer of confession that's printed uh, in the bulletin, also up on the screens behind me. Let's pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Believer, hear these words of encouragement. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Scriptures tell us on the night which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it just as I do now ministering in his name and he gave it to his disciples. We just read. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you're not a sinner, he didn't come for you. If you're not a sinner, he didn't come for you. But if you're a sinner and you know it, he came for you. That's the great news. That's our hope. That's our joy. And that, my friends, is the source and energy of change that we need. So the, if, if you come to that place in your, your spiritual life, in your walk, that you know for certain uh, that you have no other hope, no other place to turn, 
um, that you are a sinner. You've acknowledged that and you've acknowledged the, the work of Jesus Christ for you and you've proclaimed that to a body of believers somewhere. He invites you today to be restored and to be renewed. Listen, listen. There is no shame in the prodigal returning. There is no shame in recognizing and owning our neediness and our brokenness and embracing fully the grace of God in Jesus Christ to us. And so as you saw earlier in the service, we had a great uh, opportunity to see the manifest in time and in space work of God before us. And so uh, Addie Chippendale, Grant Cornwell, Nathan and Liam Oberly, and Abigail Peary all uh, uh, met with the session. And as you saw, professed faith. Well, today they take communion, take the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, uh, for the first time as communing members of the church. And so to recognize that and to see that as the elders come down front to assist me today, uh, they and their families will lead us all uh, in receiving uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Let me remind you that the outer ring is wine, the inner rings are grape juice, and all the bread is gluten-free. 